Live to see it, friends, and welcome to The World Transformed. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, one that will be here sooner than you think, and one that you have an important role to play in bringing about. At The World Transformed, we invite you to consider what may be the greatest transformation of them all, the one that begins with considering and acting on the almost limitless possibilities that lie before us and that ends somewhere beyond the reach of the human imagination. So, when does this amazing future begin? Well, today is the day. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-author, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. Happy Friday. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Uh, glad to be here at the end of the week. Uh, and, hey, we got one of our favorite guests on tonight, so let's bring we him do. on. We do. We've got Brian Wong with us. Brian, uh, Mr. Next Big Future himself, welcome back to the World Transformed. <clears throat> Happy to be back. Always, uh, always a pleasure having you on, and we thought it was especially appropriate to have you on this week because, on uh, excuse me, this t- tonight because we were going to be talking about two articles you wrote anyway. So we thought, well, you know, why, why waste time, Stephen and myself, trying to explain this stuff, and we've got you to talk about it. So <laughs> our, our our topic, as I as I mentioned on Wednesday's show is making space colonization affordable. And Brian, I know you wrote a piece about that, uh, but I thought we'd ease into that with this uh, other piece that you put up, which I know is related. SpaceX will begin deploying low-cost, mass-produced Internet satellites starting in 2019. We've talked about this, uh, some related ideas to this a little bit, but uh, briefly, what's going on here? What are, what are they planning to do? So um, SpaceX got um, funding from the the Google founders, um, I think they bought into part of SpaceX and put in like a billion dollars, something like that. And they, Elon Musk and, and Google and SpaceX all want to put up 4,000 to 20,000 internet satellites to be about 100 to 500 kilograms. Um, and then they'll sometime in 2018 start launching a couple of prototypes and then they should start launching in earnest um, beginning about 2019. And there will be high bandwidth um, satellites like you know, gigabit internet stuff, maybe multiple gig- gigabit internet. And they'll be in low, relatively low orbits, about um, uh, 1,100 kilometers, 680 miles. And so there'll be low latency. So if you, currently they may have some internet satellites up there that transmit to satellite dishes and stuff but they're like 10, 20 times higher. These are probably like 10 times higher, I think. Yeah, 10, 20 times higher. Um, but these are far lower, and um, so there's a lot lower, lower latency, like about, um, I think, 20 or 30 nanoseconds, or milliseconds. It's, it's, it's low stuff, not, not you know, much worse than the, the kind of latency we currently experience on cable broadband. And the purpose of them is what? Is it for business, for consumers? Who's going to be using these satellites? Yeah, so it will be, I think, a pretty broadly um, commercial thing. Um, I, they, they're talking about initial deployment maybe over North American developed countries. They will, when they'll cover the globe, there'll be many other more poorly served areas in Africa and Asia, but I still think that their bread and butter would be the developed countries and just um, being a competition to existing um, internet services and stuff. So, I remember, Stephen, we did a show. Oh, good. 
Go, I'm sorry, Brian. Didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, so I think uh, you know some projections that they can make thirty billion dollars in revenue with people signing up. Um, you could also provide better, I think, services into um, uh, mobile phones and other things. I think it's it's a lot of I think other businesses that can happen because of it. But um, I think they're going to straight up compete with um, existing services. Exactly. Well, uh, one of the things we talked about um, when we we looked at this. When was that? About six months ago, Stephen, I think we talked about this. We were comparing it with some other big ambitious plans that some folks have. It seems like uh, Amazon was talking about – somebody was talking about putting balloons up. I remember that much. And, and, That's and good. They're, and uh, Google's doing balloons, and uh, Facebook has got the uh, solar-powered uh, uh, aircraft that can stay up. That's it. Okay, far, yeah. Far. So everybody, everybody had their own approach, but uh, right. naturally – Elon Musk would have the most ambitious, launching thousands of satellites. And we said that when it happens, it'll probably be some compromise or maybe one or two of these will be tried. I'm not at all surprised that the most ambitious one is the one that it looks like steps are actually being taken. It's going forward and that Elon Musk is doing it. Now, the reason you have to put so many up, if, I, if I'm understanding this right, is because it is a, it's low Earth orbit. You, you can't get much of a footprint off a satellite flying that low, right? So, so the solution is you put a whole bunch of them up there, and then you can get coverage all over the world. Right, right. You need to put up a lot more if you're if you're going that low, but you have the benefit of of going to higher speeds and um, and lower uh, latencies. Okay. But there's yeah, a lot of competition. Like, a, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, Brian, I was just going to say, if it's low Earth orbit, then it's not going to be geosynchronous, is it? It's uh, these things. Uh, so the, uh, the the little satellite that's above me, uh, you know, right now, you know, might give me uh, give me Wi-Fi for a minute, but uh, it'll have to, uh, have, you know, it'll have to be handed off to another satellite here in a few minutes after it moves on. I guess is that how. Right. It, it's just like you're driving on the highway, going from cell tower to cell tower. That uh, you're being handed off, yeah. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Hopefully, it'll be that smooth of a transition. It should be. Right. Um, yeah. Right. When, uh, when, when, when those are actually up and working. Well, okay. So, so this is this is huge, and you know, typical, yeah. typical Elon Musk stuff. But let's get to the let's get to the really big stuff. Because speaking of low low Earth orbit, we've got this really interesting piece. Um, that you linked to and then wrote your own stuff about on uh, towards an economically viable roadmap to large-scale space colonization. And, you know, I describe this as low-cost space colonization, right? Space colonization on the cheap. Once again, low-Earth orbit comes into play for, for taking this approach. So, so take, us, take us through this idea. What, who, who, uh, who are these two individuals and what are they, what are they suggesting? So Al Globus and Joe Strout wrote um, a piece which is on the National Space um, Society page. It's an article written in 2016. Al Globus has worked for NASA. He's been big in the space colonization area. He, he's designed something he called Calpana, being a, um, a space station design that um, – solves um, quite a few issues in terms of stability and other things. So he's been doing this stuff for, for decades. And um, so they, those two individuals, I think Joe Strode is, is involved in the deep space industry, one of the two or three um, space mining companies, companies that 
raise money to specifically look at the mining from the asteroids. And um, their analysis was that if your orbit is only about 300 miles up, 500 kilometers, um, and in equatorial orbits, that you may not need any radiation shielding beyond the amount. You'd, you'd have some amount just from the fact that you'd make a reasonable shell on your space station to handle micrometeorites and, and space junk. So, but they're saying that um, beyond that minimum amount, say 10 kilograms per square meter of um, polyethylene, uh, that you can keep the uh, radiation inside below about 20 millisieverts per year, which um, is considered to be a, a, a reasonable safe level for, for, for people. So by not having radiation shielding, I think we go over the various designs, and basically you can save between 20 to 2,000 times the weight um, by not going with, with the shielding. So if you're just, traditionally you were sticking it out at L5, um, the range 0.5, which is um, in uh, this kind of um, neutral gravity spot, several neutral gravity spots between the Earth-Moon system. But, uh, right. I think it's like a million miles away, something like that. So they, traditionally they would stick out there. They, the, the old O'Neill um, space colonizationists would say, okay, we bring up material from the Moon, one fifth the gravity, and, and build out of there our big space station. And they're saying that... Um, build a low Earth orbit, launch from, from the Earth, yes, it's um, more energy to do it, but because it's a lot lighter, it more than balances out. And so then, and by being very close, 300 miles away, then easy to get people on and off, um, you know, they can come back in a, in a hurry as opposed to days or, you know, or, or longer to, to get back. And... Um, It'll just make um, a, a lot of other things far, far easier, and and they work out the, the cost model of it. And why um, why would the gravity, or excuse me, the gravity, excuse me, the, the uh, radiation be so much worse out there, the L five out there in that gravity neutral spot? It's not the gravity that's doing it. Or does is the Earth protecting you from the radiation if you're that close right? To it? Uh, that I think idea? the Earth magnetic field would be um, protecting you. Um, you're, you're, at that height, you're obviously above the atmosphere, so the atmosphere is no longer protecting you. But right. the Earth magnetic field would protect you from solar wind and other radiation. I um, think, I think it's also there, but it, yeah. it'd, be, yeah. it, it'd be low Earth orbit, but also equator, equatorial, right? It needs to be above the equator, because apparently you get the most shielding at or, or orbit at, at, those, uh, at those orbits, right? Uh, I hadn't uh, reviewed uh, the details of, you know, I just basically trusted the guys who, who wrote it, and, and they said that spot um, is sufficient in terms of the radiation. You know, the general analysis seemed really solid, you know, break out in detail as to exactly, you know, I presumably did their homework, and it looked like they did. It's, um, you know, several dozen pages on it. It just looks... Um, but yeah, they're, they're saying that um, yeah, that it's if you get low enough at, at that particular spot, then it's it's radiation. But I, I know mainly it's, it's you know a lot of it's the um, the field uh, aspects of it. Right. So what, I was really interesting to to read about the difference between this old model 
you know, it's funny to think that's the old model, but the old model of, well, let's do, do it from the moon, right? Um, right. And this new idea of, of doing, it, <laughs> doing it from Earth, if you launch from the moon, it's 19 times less expensive to launch than launching for Earth. So right. that was the big economic argument for going from the Earth. But if you launch from Earth and, and, and put it in low Earth orbit, it requires one nineteenth of the shielding. It's interesting how the math works out almost exactly. So you uh, right. you, you make up you make up the savings. I, I would note not only do you make up that savings, but you don't have to then build all that moon stuff to even start, right? I mean, the thing is, we can already send rockets into low Earth orbit, so we we would be in a good mm-hmm. position to get start something like this going now, wouldn't we? Or in the in the near future. That's right, and then. Um the advantage of an uh, orbital station, they're, they're spinning it at a certain speed so that you can get your 1G of gravity. So if you build a moon, you have one-sixth of gravity, and you know, your bones are, are, are not handling it that well. So it's, um, it can take away the radiation stuff and the gravitational issue because you're going to spin it at the, the speed. And being a, a station, you can, you can spin it. So now, you, you would, spent some time in the article actually talking about the gravitation, talking about uh, spinning this thing somewhere between 2 and 10 RPM. And that's the right. same as like a record, rotation right? Rounds per minute. per minute you're talking about? Is that is that right? Yeah, rotation per minute, yeah. 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 Uh, it, it, they minute. discussed it in, in there, yeah. So I, my question is, um, which one of those gives you 1G? Or, or does it depend on – obviously, it would depend on the size of the uh, – It depends on the size. Yeah, they're just yeah. talking about um, – um, smaller, you, it, if smaller, you have to rotate it faster. If it's bigger, you can rotate it less. Um, right. And then they right. talk about you know minimum sizes and other stuff like that. So ideally, you know, if you can make it huge, then you can rotate a lot, very slowly, and then you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's huge and it's rotating at two rotations per minute, it's going very fast, right? I mean, it's uh, yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, it doesn't have to do as many rotations per minute, but it's got to be. It's got to be really booking to, to do that. But, but it's interesting. It talks about uh, how, how difficult or easily people would adjust to those different speeds. Even if, even if they're all giving you 1G, I guess if you're getting yeah. 1G by way of 10 rotations per minute versus 1G versus 2 rotations per minute, that makes a big difference in terms of how easy it is to adapt to that. That's right. Yeah. It, some people can handle more rotations, other people can't. And then, you know, whether you get sick or not, you know, the whole you know, um, kind of like your um, pilots and how many Gs they can they can withstand or, or how much spinning they can take. Yeah. The 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 thing that uh, strikes me is that if we were to put one of these up, this would be yeah. very visible, right? Going through the night sky, this mm-hmm. thing. I mean, we're, we're right. talking about you know you can see the International Space Station if you know where to look, and it it would be right. tiny compared to this, right? If we had several of these going, these would be pretty spectacular. It seems to me it would be a pretty spectacular sight up there in the sky having this thing fly over every Yeah, it looks like a, a dot in the sky. So it, it seems to still be a dot. It, I think the interstation you know, is pretty big across. So yeah. I think these ones, they, they talk about ones going up to about, I think, um, maybe 120 meters, so about the size, you know, a bit more than a football field kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, at that distance, it, it still be pretty small, but in terms of like if you're looking at it from the ground, but um, 
yeah, bigger and brighter than, than the International Space Station, you know, maybe 10 times brighter or something like that. I'm not sure how big it would have to be for you to actually kind of see a speck or something like that um, during the day. Um, but, you know, I'm, you know, bigger, better, more space elevation, you know, sooner, faster, so it's all good to me. Yeah, well, I guess I was taken in by this picture that you included in your blog post because that thing is definitely yeah. bigger than 120 meters across, right? That thing looks like it's... Yeah, yeah. I, I took the, some of the old um, uh, O'Neill colony or, or variations of the O'Neill colony uh, thing, the, the nice picture. I didn't go for the Al Globus and the guys didn't um, have sufficiently um, uh, sexy pictures, so I took one of the old ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is that is an inspiring image. Okay, if they put that thing up yeah. there, that would be highly visible from Earth. That's all yeah. I'm saying. That would, that, would right. be, uh, that, that would be that would be quite a sight. But but taking it back more realistically to the kind of thing we're talking about, what what kind of a you know population or crew or whatever you call it would you have on a station that size? How many people do you suppose it would it would support? <clears throat> They talked about um, for the um, something 56 meters across, uh, kind of Stanford tourists, which is kind of like a, I think a filled in donut, <clears throat> that would have about 123 people could, I think, call that long term. I think you always have more if they're just kind of visiting, being there short term, or, or, or living like the, the guys who currently send up in you know, like very tiny, cramped conditions. Um, you know, in the tin cans for a few months. So you, you can always cram in more, but I think they're talking about long-term, not going crazy, you know, kind of kind of uh, population of 123 people at that 56 meter diameter um, Stanford tour. So that's basically like um, uh, like a large gymnasium, I guess, like maybe two or three yeah. gymnasiums. It's called yeah. mediums, and then having 100 people live in there on an extended basis. Right, and and that's the that's the permanent population because, as as right. you discussed, one of the motivations for putting it up there would be tourism. That that right. having people go up there and stay for a while would be one of the ways to kind of pay for it, and one of the uh, mm-hmm. w- one of the ways to kind of make the whole thing economically viable. Actually, you mentioned two things. You said there were there were two uh, kind of economic drivers and tourism was one. I can't remember what the other one was. The other one they mentioned was um, space solar power. Oh, okay. That, that, uh, in terms of that, that, that was viability in terms of like making a lot of launches. Um, but I, and then article I did today, I, I discussed the, the first part the, that we talked about, the internet satellites. If you're going to put up 4,000, 20,000, if there's more competition, uh, I think OneWeb and Samsung are talking about putting up thousands of satellites too. That um, if you're putting up that many, even if you could pack in, let's say they weigh three per ton, so you launch 10 tons with the Falcon 9 or maybe a bit more, um, then you can launch maybe two dozen, three dozen max, something like that, and maybe less because you may have to have some dispensing systems. So if you're going to launch, let's say, 10,000 of them, then that's uh, 5,000, 10,000 launches to do that. Um, if you can put it up over, um, you know, five years or 10 years, you know, th- that you're looking at up to around 1,000 launches per year, maybe 2,000 launches per year when you're deploying them. But then if you're, they only last, say, 
I don't know, five, ten years as the orbits decay and then you got to replace them or things right. break down or you upgrade, then you may sustain 500 launches per year. So that would get close to their goal of saying they want 10,000 flights per year for a um, uh, to bring the cost down 50 times or more to, you know, to get down to below a million dollars all in in terms of transporting the person, transporting the habitat, and all the materials, all that kind of stuff. Um, from current costs of $30 million to transport one person, $60 million to send up all the materials. Um, but if you at that midpoint, going up from our current 100, a little less than 100 launches per year, up to 1,000, that could get us, with fully reusable vehicles, which um, Elon Musk has already um, launched uh, and recovered first stages and is going to launch again. Uh, I think it actually just did actually say second um, successful relaunch of a, of a first stage. But he's what, talking. What, about, what were we um, saying the other day, Stephen? He's recovering the nose cones, right? He's saving everything. He's, he's yeah, yeah, he's, he's saving trying. The nose cones too, yeah. He's yeah. trying bringing to it all back. Yeah, yeah he's tr- bringing it all back. Yeah, if he can. And he's saying that at the end of 2018, he's going to try and recover all all stages, something like that, all stages and the nose cone, all that kind of stuff. So he does that once, say, by 2018, and another two or three years to kind of work the kinks out and, and to do it on a regular basis all the time for all stages, and then do this wrap-up thing with the, with the inner satellites. Then he has maybe 10, 20, or whatever vehicles, maybe even 30 vehicles that he's reusing, and then launching a thousand times per year. That's what he really needs to bring the cost down. Um, along the way, of course, you'll have killed Arian, whatever, unless the government just supports them as charity cases. Um, but then, you know, he'll take us up from 100 launches up to 1,000, and then it'll be a question of, is there the demand? Are people adventurous enough to, okay, the cost is right, we've gone up to 1,000. I'm pretty confident that we'll get to 1,000 tourists per year at that million buck price. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just based on my analysis of how much it costs to go to Everest, um, how many people do it, 1,000 people per year, how many go on these other expensive tours and that kind of stuff. So I think that, I think it's quite confident. So then the question, By way of comparison, how much there, does it yeah. cost to go to Everest? How, if those people who it, do that. It costs thirty-five to $65,000 um, to do a, a summit attempt. Uh-huh, Less okay. if you just want, you know, like maybe 10000 bucks. Go to base to camp, yeah. Go to base camp, yeah. But to go to summit attempt, you know, 35 to 65k, depending upon if you go local or whether you go with the Western company. Of course, you can always spend more, but you know that's the, the rough cost. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, by the time you end up paying for the rescue attempt, uh, you know you've, <laughs> you're, right. you're, spend, yeah. you're spending more. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, that's a that's a steep drop you're talking about there in the in the piece. Where, whereas today it would cost 60 million each time, right, to get somebody up there in terms right. of both the launch yeah. and the and, and, and supporting the weight up there. Even at that cost, there are a few people in the world who would do it, right? Even, um, right. I mean, there, uh, there have been a few space tourists who paid, I don't know if it's been that kind of money, but a lot of money. Yeah, it's been in the range. Yeah, in that 20 to $60 million range, there's been about yeah, like, like 10 or 12 who paid it. And apparently there's like two others who are going to pay for, I think, in the Apollo 8 style of flyby of, of the right. moon. Next right. year, where and the, and I think and you, that's like guys, half a billion to go, take that trip, right? I mean, that's a lot. Right, right, right. The yeah, two hundred million to half a billion 
um, to, to do that. But apparently, people want to do that. Um, so, because yeah. so I'm thinking, you I know think, what? If you buy that ticket, if you buy the sixty million dollar ticket, that yeah. means you've got at least a hundred million. <laughs> okay, right? You know what I'm saying? It's just there's a, yeah. you know, yeah. somebody who has sixty one million dollars is probably not thinking about <laughs> doing that. And and similarly, okay. if you if you can get the economies of scale, you get it down to. Yeah. Uh, 1.2 million to do the whole thing. Um, you know, there there is a growing number of people who would both have the inclination and have that kind of money lying around, or could scrape it together, who would do it. Right? It's right. Right. You know, th- th- those people exist. They definitely, they definitely do exist. That I mean, that is a it's a rarefied group. You know, they're they're more affluent and more. Uh, well, I won't say more adventurous, but they're more affluent and they're taking on something more extreme even than going to Everest, which is a big expense and obviously takes years of uh, commitment to, uh, to to get ready for something like this. But on the financial this, side, this, 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 this would be bigger. I'm sorry, Stephen? Uh, I was just saying, put it this way, you know, uh, if we're talking 20 or 30 million, there's just a handful of people in the world that will do that. But uh, you get it down to, you know, one to two million dollars. There's there's a handful of people in every sizable city that could do that. Right, that's right. And, yeah, and uh, yeah. In terms of the, the wealth yeah. numbers, you know, you know, the Forbes has the two thousand, I think maybe twenty five hundred. I can't believe that number um, billionaires that they track. And then there's about um, um, I think eighty thousand with over thirty million, and that's not including any real estate. It's about you know. Um, uh, they, they call ultra high net worth individuals. Right. Um, I think there's about like 80,000 of them. And I think both numbers may be slightly underestimated because Forbes is only going for people with public money that they can see. And there's a bunch of um, private money people who are also very wealthy who don't, don't get onto the radar, or, you know, don't have their money exposed. Um, as, as the people on the list. And you know what's interesting to me about when, when I hear those kinds of numbers, I know a lot of people hear those kinds of numbers and, you know, they start income inequality and this is proof and all the... To me, this, this indicates really kind of that we're moving towards post-scarcity, okay? <laughs> you have that many people with mm-hmm. millions of dollars. And, you know, a few, a few big or even subtle changes in that direction, it seems to me, would make this even vastly more accessible to people, which has got to be somewhere mm-hmm. in the minds of uh, Elon Musk and, and others who are working on getting us into space. Anyhow, when, when he starts doing things like launching all the satellites, as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, I, I think he's got very much a kind of a post-scarcity mindset. It's almost like he assumes it's coming um, to to make his Mars project viable. And it seems like... Mm-hmm. Um, you make us all a little bit richer, and you know this suddenly becomes like a more elaborate Disney vacation or something like that. Going to a, take, taking a trip like that, in which case, in which case you can envision having a lot of these up there, and a lot of people uh, potentially going to it. But you know, maybe not. Maybe that'll, maybe it'll take longer for for us to get there. I, but I, I can't help but think that this is the sort of thing that sort of pushes us in that direction a little bit, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, I think it's. Pushing us toward the next stage, not, not say post scarcity, but, but the next stage. I look at it as us finally catching up to the development of early flight. That we've oh, okay. been stuck in the pre-1914 era when you just had those um, 
just getting up to biplanes. I don't mean at the biplane level. Um, right. And and we went from, you know, if you consider the moonshot maybe the equivalent of um, uh, maybe the Wright brothers or a bit beyond. Kitty Hawk, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe a bit beyond Kitty Hawk, but you know, yeah. not too many years beyond that. And then by 1914, 1915, or whatever, 1917, you're using planes in World War One. You know, Red Baron, right. all that stuff. And you know, we have now some satellites and some beginnings of that kind of thing. But then you go to 1930 or 1940, something like that, you have, you know, um, crossing, um, well, when did, when did Lindbergh do his thing? I think it was in the 1930s, right? 37, yeah, crossed, I believe. Yeah, yeah crosses the, the Atlantic, and then you have, you look at Indiana Jones movies talking about, you know, you have those um, seaplanes hopping across, places and something like that. So we're, you know, I would see us, you know, Elon Musk and these other guys getting space colonization and, and a lot of trips of 1,000, 10,000 people getting to that 1930s, not even to the World War II era level of, of planes and having commercialization and a real space industry. We've been too long locked in only governments. Um, you know, early on in, in aviation, you had the uh, government providing the post office, buying flights, uh, you know, not saying that they were not the ones delivering all the overseas mail, but they were like saying, we will provide this contract for commercial people to help us deliver mail, and that helped build up that early thing. So if they were just saying, we will just buy flights and <clears throat> get out of um, any building of rockets, if they're also building rockets, they, they shouldn't be, especially... I'm totally him written many articles about how the space launch system is just this utter disaster where they're gonna spend like twenty three million dollars to get to the first launch. Right. Um right. It's just like nuts. Um yeah. So I think that they that we can get to finally the equivalent of aviation circa nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. I like that I like on. that analogy a lot. And by the way, I, I looked, so don't send the email. It was nineteen twenty seven that Charles Lindbergh did his flight, so I was off by Decade, excuse me. I, I had the seven right, so I feel like you know, part, yeah. partial victory there. But um, uh, yeah, you, you think about it. Before World War One, every flight was pretty much just kind of an experiment, right? It's kind of it's kind right. of where where we are with uh, with space flight now. And then suddenly there was a reason to scale it, right? There was a right. big motivating reason to scale this thing up and that's and that does seem to be what we're what we're driving towards now and and absolutely it doesn't you know that doesn't get you to post scarcity necessarily but it uh in a sense we achieved a sort of a massive new affordability of uh aviation uh, which right. continued on in, in, into the into the current day, which is you know why we have the wonderful commercial a- aviation system we have today. Although we complain about it quite a bit, it's really pretty remarkable what uh, uh, yeah. what what pe- what people can do. Um, yeah, a little bit of that for space flight sounds like uh, sounds like an excellent direction to be taking. Well, you know what, we've run out of time to talk about this stuff. So, Brian, is there any parting thoughts on the uh, affordable space colonization before we move over to other geek? Um, I would just say that it, it would also have this, you know, lifting effect. I think for other future development in that, if you have use this, get far better communications, far better GPS. Like having every square inch of the planet with one gigabit per second um, internet. Like right now, you know, my phone still has gaps even when I'm in freaking Oakland, and right. um, 
and having all that constant communication, your robots, easy to program because you've got location and communication, maybe even energy constantly being beamed down, it will enable us to do a lot of other stuff by having complete global coverage. Awesome. All right. Well, looking forward to learning more about that. And uh, thanks, thanks, Brian. And a nice uh, first stop on the way to everywhere else, right? Um, That's right. There you go. So. Yeah. Could be. Could be that uh, just as people go to base camp on their way up to Everest, maybe uh, who knows, asteroid miners will stop by on their way out to uh, do do what they're going to do. Yeah, I, I okay. Just well, love that conversation in uh, the movie Two Thousand and One, where uh, they're they're sitting there, you know, in in a uh, space station very much like you were describing Brian and the conversation was well are you going up or are you going down I mean it's yeah. just, it was just <laughs> you know it's just it's just a way station you know it's just a uh, you know and, and you can just as easily go go down to earth or go go up to the moon or, or, or further out on the Mars or wherever, wherever yeah happening. wherever absolutely okay well speaking of going into space it's time for other geek it's friday we do this every week we're going to geek out a little bit Stephen, what do you got for us this week well uh, we've got a new uh, uh we got a new seth mcfarland uh sci-fi comedy coming out. all right um and it's uh it's named after one of the early uh aviators right yeah uh, speaking Orville. of speaking of the wright brothers uh yeah. apparently uh this this looks like if you if you watch the trailer and we've got a, we'll include a link here in the show notes, it looks almost like kind of a uh, Galaxy Quest the series is how. Some well, yeah, that's works. exactly what I you know I, I think it is. Um, you know, we we lost Alan Rickman, and so uh, the cast uh, and uh, and the people behind Galaxy Quest they were moving towards a series very recently, Bill. I mean, uh, it, you know, it was uh, within the last uh, you know. Five years or so, they were they were really moving, taking serious steps towards a Galaxy Quest series. And is that right? There was going to be a Galaxy Quest TV series. Oh yeah, they, I, um, I didn't realize uh, that. Wow, it was it was all but a done deal. And then when Alan Rickman died, it just that that was it. I yeah, mean, he can't do it. You know, he, yeah, he can't do it. He's he was the Spock of Galaxy Quest. Right. And so you right. can't you can't do it without him. And uh, and so that's this is I think. Uh, you know the uh, uh, sort of a uh, it, it's it's kind of meant to be a send up of, uh, of Star Trek, but I think in a, in a real way it's uh, it's Galaxy Quest uh, uh, in a way. Um, it has a lot of the same spirit, and it looks it looks like it'd be a lot of fun. It looks it looks funny. I, I'm you know Seth MacFarlane worries me a little bit. Uh, some of the analysis I've been reading is. You know he's great with animation, not so great in in person. So we'll see. Uh, uh, what 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 I saw in the previews, I don't know. It looked pretty funny. Uh, Brian, have you had a chance to watch the trailer? What do you think? Um, I haven't watched the the trailer, although I have it in front of me, so I see the still of it. Um, I know that he's a big Star Trek fan, so I'm mm-hmm. reasonably confident that he will, um, you know, um, <clears throat> provide you know a good um, a good spoof of it. Yeah, it should. Yeah. It, anyway, it should be fun to watch. What's interesting is this trailer is coming out, and still, first there were stills, and then, then the trailer came out. About the same time, we're seeing stills, and I don't even know if there's a trailer for the the new Star Trek series. Um, lots more excitement. I didn't see the trailer like for about, that. Oh, okay, good. Right now, catch us up. How's that look? Um, if the it has um the the female. Captain is the um, I mean, there may be more than one captain, but the female captain was the the woman from uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, right? The right. Older woman, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and so 
the the trailer had them on a desert planet, looks like, and then they beam up, and then you know a bunch of others, you know, cutting between various stuff happening, and they deal with the Klingons. Um, looks like they're it's one of the the Klingon war, which is I think why they had that um, um, the lawsuit with the um, the the company that they seemed to want it. Yeah, we talked about that on Other Geek a while fan back. Film. Yeah, shut, shutting down the yeah. fan-produced uh, series. Ah, because it was dealing oh, but, with the same basic storyline, yeah. huh? Uh, right, oh, right. But the thing is, I think it was kind of a chicken and egg. I think the, the fan guys proved that you could do well done thing and happened to choose a good era in Trek history, and then they said, oh, let's do that, and then let's sue these guys who are, who are doing it. Um, but now they're letting them do like two 20-minute or something like that um, bits of, of their fan film. Um, but uh, so anyway, talking about the the CBS uh, online trailer, um, the space things. When I noticed it was, it looked like they had a lot of um, lens flare that they were doing uh-huh. kind of the J.J. Abrams' first um, Star Trek look to the um, to the spaceships, which I don't know I, I found that a bit. Um, off-putting, but, you know... <laughs> That's it, the it word I would have cool, used, but it, you know, actually. Yes. The, yeah. the, the, the lens flare gets old really fast, doesn't it? It's, uh, you know... I know, yeah. That technique has been done. Well, it's, 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 just, it's interesting to me that we, we're, we're seeing uh, both of these announced at the same time, and from where I'm sitting, it looks to me like uh, Orville's getting all the buzz. Although, uh, based on what you've just said, I've definitely now got to watch the trailer for this, because I mean, it sounds like it's a good cast, and they're putting it in a... Yeah. A good a good time period, but yeah, if there's one thing it's, you don't need to copy from the, troubled, uh, uh, um, the new Star Trek Discovery has has had a very troubled development, uh, has mm. it's uh, the yeah. buzz is kind of yeah. you know that it, they've uh, they they've really struggled. I I, I hope that it, it's good in spite of that, uh, but uh, I, my hopes are much higher for Orville than uh, than for Star Trek Discovery. So uh, we'll see though. Well, I hope they're both good. You know, yeah, here's 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 hoping they're both good. But I, I guess I guess I'm kind of looking forward to Orville in a way that I'm yeah I'm almost a little nervous about uh, the the new the new Star Trek series. But we should just be glad. We should be glad this stuff's coming out. We've got that to to look forward to. And with that, you know, we've gone a bit over our time. But uh, how could we resist when we had so much great space stuff to talk about? Brian, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. And. Stephen, look forward to being with you again on Monday. We've got three brand new shows coming up next week. Look forward to being with you all. And until next time, live to see it. 